0: Hi everyone! Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeeds ID fellow. I am here with Dr. Brad Cutrell. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, absolutely, Sarah. Thanks so much for the invitation. Longtime listener, first time caller, <laughs> um, but. I, I was born and raised in Texas, and uh, I currently am an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Geographic Medicine at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Uh, I also serve as our director of antimicrobial stewardship at our university hospital and have the privilege of serving as our adult ID fellowship program director uh, for the last five years uh, at UT Southwestern. In my spare time, Uh, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Crystal, and have two boys uh, who love to keep me busy. So, But really happy (laughs) to be here to talk to you about this exciting topic.
0: Yeah. Well, for everyone who's listening, this episode actually marks the about two-year anniversary or birthday of Febrile. So this is episode 65, which is the end of our second season spanning the year of 2022. Uh, So before we talk about things today, I, I have to give a thank you and share my gratitude to every single person who has supported this resource and FEBRAL's mission. We have continued to grow a lot over the past year and now have listeners and downloads that have reached all 50 U.S. states and 169 countries, which is so exciting. And so the the most important thank you goes to the trainees and the faculty members who have volunteered their time and their knowledge, and most importantly, their love of ID. Uh, and I, I think that's a really nice segue into our topic today because we're going to end the year and the season by updating everyone about the US ID Fellowship match, which I did briefly last year, but we're going to talk in a little bit more detail beyond the numbers today and dig into the history and the challenges of. The ID pipeline and workforce. Uh, but before we start, we have to pause for our culture podcast snippet. This is the one time that I feel like I get to say my little piece of culture. Uh, but Brad, I'm going to throw it over to you to give us your sort of year-end picks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think movies, this will sound a little cliche, but I really enjoyed Top Gun Maverick. And it was a throwback. <laughs> I think
0: everyone did.
1: <laughs> so, so that was... Uh, that was a, a highlight for me. In terms of TV, I'd have to say watching the World Cup 2022, which is still ongoing as we record, has been wonderful with my two sons uh, who are getting into soccer. So really excited about seeing how that concludes. And then for a book, uh, although it was not a new book this year, it was new to me, The Culture Code uh, by Daniel Coyle, which really walks through some of the elements that are important for highly successful teams and, and leadership has been, you know, really thought provoking for me.
0: So for me, my movie of the year was everything, everywhere, all at once, which was just incredible, and I love it so much. I do watch a lot of TV, or I guess I should say I I stream a lot, because I know a lot of people don't have cable anymore. Severance and The After Party were excellent, and then I just finished Andor not too long ago and really enjoyed that. And then my book is also not from this year, but it, it's from a couple years ago at this point, I think now. Um, it's called Crying at H-Mart. And um, for those who haven't read it uh, or or know this, the author is actually the main singer of Japanese Breakfast, which is a, a pop group that I also like. So it's like a double combo recommendation. But great, I have to I have to contain it all year and not tell everyone what all my culture picks are, so I have to let them all out here. But back to the match, we want to say congratulations and welcome to all of the new and incoming ID fellows. We're so glad that you're joining our family. Um, this is an update on the breakdown of the match result statistics from appointment year 2023. Brad, can you take us through the adult ID match?
1: Yeah, so we'll start with the adult numbers, and I'll kind of compare and contrast uh, the 2023 appointment data for last year, the 2022 data. So in terms of certified programs, there were 175, which was similar to the 172 the year before, but I think the number that really jumped out at people was only 98 programs filled, so 56% of adult ID fellowship programs filled compared to 70% last year. So I think that number got people's attention, meaning if you do the math, 77 or 44 percent of programs went unfilled. And then when you look at it relative to certified positions, there were 441 um, adult ID positions offered in the match compared to 436, and there were 328 of those positions that were filled, or 74 percent. That was down from 82 percent the year before leaving 113 positions unfilled or 26%. So Sarah, do you want to tell us about the pediatric numbers?
0: Yeah. So on the PEAT side, we had 56 certified programs. Of those, 24 filled or 43%, which is pretty similar to last year, which was a 41% fill fill rate for programs, um, meaning that 57% or 32 of the pediatric ID programs went unfilled. As far as certified positions, there were 81 this year, which is up from 59 last year. The number of spots filled were 40, making 49% filled and then 51% unfilled. So, you know, that number is pretty similar to last year. There was 41% of the positions on the pediatric side that were filled in 2022. And so there's been a lot of reactions to this, and I think people were... Surprised or or sort of taken off guard. And then I think that sort of evolved and there was alarm and disappointment and anger. And um, Brad, I'm sure you've heard and and seen a lot of those same things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's interesting um, because after a little bit of a reprieve or or what seemed to be a couple of years uh, early on in the pandemic of hopeful uh, numbers, where it seemed like the number of applicants and the number of programs filling. Uh, was going in a positive direction. This was kind of, I think, a a rude awakening or a wake-up call that really things, uh, there's some fundamental things that are still a challenge and led to a lot of questions. Uh, You know, why are there so many unfilled positions? Why are we seeing kind of this decreasing pool of applicants? Uh, IDSA, our, our official national society, put out a statement from Carlos Del Rio just, you know, talking about Ah uh, the gravity of the situation and trying to highlight some of the the society's um, efforts that that they are taking. I'm curious Sarah, what what was the reaction that we saw on ID Twitter?
0: <laughs> I mean, it, there it, it was loud, I would say, and I, I think there was a a really specific focus on compensation and you know, people don't want to do ID because we're not paid. Um, and I, I think that's kind of our goal today is to talk a little bit about that because I think there are more factors at play in this. But I think something that stood out to me is that this also became loud enough that it really broke into more sort of general news. So there was a stat news article, but also an NPR news um, story on this. And they they called it newest Dr. Shun ID specialty, um, which... <laughs> felt a little extreme. But, you know, important to note that this was, I think there were enough people who were vocal on Twitter that it really caught people's attention. Um, And so, you know, I think this has clearly been a hot topic for the past couple weeks. But really, we know that the dwindling pipeline into ID has been a longstanding issue that a lot of people have been thinking about and researching and working on for years. And so We thought it would be helpful to offer a little bit of review or sort of historical context to think about the ID recruitment workforce issues that have come up. And so maybe I'll hand it over to you to tell us a little bit more about how this has evolved over time.
1: Sure. I'm happy to do that. So this is a topic I got interested in several years ago. I gave a talk on kind of the value of an ID clinician and so started going back through some of the literature dating back even to the 1960s and 70s. And what's interesting is I think with the advent of antimicrobials and, and there was this kind of prevailing notion that, you know, infectious diseases was going to be cured. Uh, th- I think there was a lot of concern within the specialty uh, that, that it was going to be a dying specialty. And probably one of the first or most notable calls about this was from really one of the luminaries at the time, uh, Dr. Robert Petersdorf, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1978 in in an article titled The Doctor's Dilemma, where he literally predicted the end of infectious diseases as a specialty. And he has this kind of often quoted line where he says, even with my great personal loyalties to infectious disease, I cannot conceive a need for 309 more infectious (laughs) disease experts unless they spend their time culturing each other. So, so it's, <laughs> it's kind of bracing to to hear, you know, leaders in the field, you know, voicing that type of concern. Uh, but then even moving into the early 1980s, uh, another article, famous article that Dr. Peter Storff published in our one of our own journals, JID, in 1986 called Wither Infectious Diseases. He said, in a fee-for-service environment, infectious disease practitioners have difficulty in making a living. There are few or no procedures. There's a lot of uncompensated phone time and there's the need to visit several hospitals and spend a good deal of time traveling. In academic medical centers, infectious disease divisions are almost invariably loss leaders. And I know a few that are not heavily supported by university salaries, hospital salaries, and grants. Infectious diseases divisions do not earn enough in practice to make a go of it and also require subsidies from the higher earning divisions in their parent departments. So, but Dr. Petersdorf was not the only one Um, sounding the alarm, and and there were some very colorful comments, uh, one in particular uh, from Dr. Richard Irvin uh, in a paper entitled The Bell Tolls for the Infectious Diseases Clinician, also published in 1986 in uh, JID, uh, says it this way, very quite colorful language. In 1980, Dr. Paul Beeson outlined that our specialty lacks every attribute needed for successful (laughs) practice, special technology, chronic disease, and balanced remuneration. The infectious disease clinician has nothing except cognitive skills for which fair financial awards elude most of us in practice. We are already the least needed of all specialists and future trainees must be honestly informed that infectious disease is a very unwise choice as a field of clinical training. If a cardiologist can say that the medical profession is more at risk and has more risk factors than a 50-year-old male, type A and hypertensive with coronary artery disease who smokes two packs of cigarettes a day and has a cholesterol of 400, then I would describe the ID subspecialty as the same patient with septic shock. (laughs) So, you know, when you read things like this, again, in our own journals, you you know, it's a little bit interesting to think about what happened. And and I think many of us will know that really a turning point in the mid-1980s and onward uh, was the onset of the HIV pandemic. And, And I think that really was a game changer for the field. It spurred new interest in ID practice. Uh, in ID clinical, as well as basic science research. It also, I think, just highlighted the growing need for an ID workforce. And so I think HIV, in many ways, helped to expand and fuel much of the work in ID for the better part of 20 plus years. When you look across the landscape, many of our current ID leaders and luminaries in the field really came of age and I would say were inspired, at least partially, to go into ID because of the HIV pandemic. And so I think we kind of we we lived off of that energy and, and passion for HIV for you know 20 plus years, but then you know in the mid uh, 2000s, your late 2000s, early you know kind of 2010 era is when things started to kind of uh, take a decline again. And so when you look actually at trends in total applications and and match rates to the ID workforce. This year is actually not the worst that we've seen. 2016 was kind of the nadir in terms of matches. Only 42% of programs filled uh, that year, and that was one of the first years where the total number of applicants per position dropped to 0.7, meaning there were fewer individuals applying to ID than there were positions offered in the match. And, and, And I think IDSA did a uh, commission a match analysis, and this motivated I think several actions at the national level. But one of the most immediate was a move to the so-called all-in match, which means that fellowship programs uh, who are filling their spots through the match have to fill all of their available positions in the match rather than offering candidates outside of the match. And so this was thought to be a way to help level the playing field and, and try to bring a bit more transparency. Uh, About what the actual workforce was, so so that kind of brings us up. Obviously, with the pandemic, uh, there there was, as I mentioned, there were a couple of years there where we saw a bit of an uptick in terms of applicants and had been dubbed the Fauci effect. Seemed like that there was kind of a growing interest. Uh, But like I said, this year's uh, match statistics kind of were a wake up call that I I think fundamentally there there's still some big challenges that we face uh, with regards to the ID workforce.
0: Yeah. We're not here to just be <laughs> doom and gloom. We want to talk about what can we do. And I think there are a lot of topics that come up in, the, in this conversation. I mentioned compensation tends to come to the forefront, but I want to emphasize a lot of the other concepts as well and sort of strategies that we can use. And I think the first one is really to try to build our pipeline And there's been several studies that have shown that early exposure to ID, so in curriculums or rotations or finding mentorship really matters. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the people who've taken a look into that question?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of us have, you know, anecdotes or stories and and there's real power in that. But I think it's also important really to look at the data. And so one of the, you know, first uh, publications in the contemporary literature that really looked at this was led by. You know, one, one of our, our friends, Aaron Bonura at Oregon Health Science uh, Center with uh, Wendy Armstrong and others, really trying to analyze the factors that influence internal medicine residents' choice uh, of entering into specialties. And so this was published in CID in 2016. It was a national cross-sectional mixed methods study of IM graduates uh, from ACGME programs, So first they convened focus groups with residents and program directors from eight different residency programs. Uh, Out of those focus groups, they developed a questionnaire uh, and then they disseminated that to 105 residency programs. They got about 590 residents that responded. So that was about 30% response rate. Um, Over 40% were international medical graduates and about two thirds of the respondents and and more than 70% that ended up applying to ID recalled developing an interest in their chosen field before entering residency. And more than 20% developed it even before medical school. And so I think what this highlighted was, if you're going to build the pipeline, you really can't wait until someone's in their, you know, second or third year of residency. You really need to target those pre-medical and medical students early on uh, so that you can catch them early, uh, you know, identify uh, that interest cultivate it through things like curriculums uh, and and then ultimately through mentorship and rotations. Um, And this aligns with, you know, what we see in other um, aspects of medicine in terms of kind of when these pivotal career decisions are made. I think another uh, important paper that came out uh, in Open Forum Infectious Diseases in 2018 Uh, This came from uh, my good friend Dana Blythe and some of her colleagues in uh, the military uh, ID uh, fellowship programs, and they wanted to look at the timing of when a resident or an intern did their ID clinical rotation and and how that factored into their likelihood to apply to ID. So this was a retrospective study uh, looking at categorical internal medicine interns, staff and fellows they rotated with asked about experiential factors of on their rotation to try to help determine what was it that predicted who ended up um, becoming a future ID Fellowship applicant. And this was looking at all the internal medicine interns at Brooke Army Medical Center uh, in San Antonio. So they looked at 143 uh, interns, uh, 10 or 7% of them eventually applied to ID. And one of the striking features they found was that 90% of those who applied compared to 46% who didn't apply to ID, rotated in their ID uh, clinical rotation in the first six months of internship. So again, highlighting that importance of, you know, catching people early, uh, grabbing their interest, hooking them up with, you know, clinical and research mentors, and, and then maintaining that, you know, throughout the time. So I think based on this and, and, and other types of work, you know, at a national level, IDSA has really uh, pushed a lot of efforts, things like starting ID interest groups and, and helping support and fund those at the medical student level. Lots of work with our national annual ID Week meeting uh, around mentorship for students and residents and fellows, as well as other attempts to make it you know a low barrier for for trainees of all levels to attend the meeting and, and really to have a successful experience. But I'm curious, Sarah, maybe reflecting on your own experience. When did you First, get interested in ID, and what were some of those early kind of factors that that really uh, cinched it for you to pick that as a
0: career? Yeah, I think I think I always probably wanted to do ID and didn't realize it. I actually did a both an adult ID and then a pediatric ID rotation when I was in medical school, and um, at the time I was doing um, more towards sort of international medical trips and a lot of my. Um, a lot of the attendings who went on those trips were ID docs, and so I sort of got to see them in action and really admired how they thought. And then, of course, you know, I I applied and went to residency, and I was like, you know, I'm going to be a med ped's hospitalist. I have it all, <laughs> have it all figured out. Um, and then again, did an ID rotation, I believe when I, I must have been an intern on the adult side. And then we have an ID pediatric ID clinical service at um, the peds hospital that I was at. And so I am definitely a classic example of someone who had a lot of ID up front and made me come to my senses and and realize um, that's what I wanted to do. And then, you know, from there, I think I, I sought out some mentors and they were all like, please join us. Like we would love, <laughs> let's work together. This is the best specialty. And so I hope that down the road, I can do that for um, other early trainees if they came to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that definitely resonates with my own experience and what we've yeah. seen here. And you know, I would highlight for those who attended ID Week this past year, there was a really wonderful series of talks. Um, one from Aaron Bonura about things that can be done with medical students, and then one from Wendy Armstrong about strategies, uh, really to help support and and, and drive. Uh, interest in ID at the residency level. So people who want to hear more you know, about some really practical solutions or strategies for helping build the pipeline, I would direct people to, to check out those two talks.
0: Yeah. All right. So number one, we're going to work on our pipeline. Next up, I, I guess I can't really avoid it too much longer. The question is, is there something that we can do to remove some of the barriers or roadblocks that uh, trainees or those who are Pre-ID are thinking about, and I have avoided it long enough and feel like we do have to address compensation and and debt relief. And so maybe what I'll do is introduce the fact that most of the focus ends up on this because there are many surveys out there. It's very easy to find that show that compensation for the average ID doc is near the bottom of a median salary graph. And then pediatric ID is usually that really, really small dot on the right side of that graph. But tell us a little bit more about sort of how you think about the compensation question and and what we can do about that in the future.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great, this is a, you know, the elephant in the room, something that we have to discuss. Yeah. So the latest data from the 2022 Medscape survey just recently came out looking at annual physician compensation. It put ID physicians at a median of 260,000 per year, uh, which was the lowest really for any of the internal medicine subspecialties. I'd also highlight that, you know, in many, People pointed out that for academic ID physicians, the median is is even lower than that. And but I think what's really striking is it ends up being about a hundred thousand less per year on average than the average for all specialties, and including what I would say are you know oftentimes some of the, the groups we're competing for, like groups like hospitalist uh, medicine. And then, as you mentioned, pediatric ID, we got to show some love for, for our wonderful PDID docs. They, they oftentimes are at the very, very bottom, uh, less, much less than, than 200,000 per year. And so I think oftentimes when you're talking to trainees, uh, one of the big sticking points is that why do you want to come and do two or, in some cases, three additional years of training only to come out and make less uh, than a generalist or other subspecialist, oftentimes the hospitalist or whoever who's consulting you for your expertise. And and so it feels really like a a loss, an opportunity cost to go ahead and, you know, become an attending or, or become an independent physician. And so for many people, I think that can be a challenging thing to overcome, even if they have, you know, some natural inclinations or interest in infectious diseases. And then the other piece of it, I think, is really um, the rising cost of um, college and medical schools. And so many people are coming in with substantial amounts of debt. And so the question really is, if you're carrying that amount of debt, do you really want to ultimately end up in a specialty where it could take you 10, 15, 20 years to finish paying off all of your debt? And so I think uh, that looming debt uh, motivates people oftentimes to choose some of the higher compensated subspecialties, even if, you know, maybe their they're heart, heart of hearts that they really uh, wish they could do infectious diseases. So I do think this is an area that, you know, we can't avoid. Uh, there has to be work. And, you know, I do know IDSA at the society level has been working hard on this, um, trying to help advocate for uh, increases in compensation, trying to advocate against things like cuts in Medicare reimbursement and other things like that. Uh, They've launched here recently things like the ID Physician Compensation Initiative, which includes a series of webinar series, includes things like compensation negotiation playbooks. I think one challenge that in ID we often face is that many other specialties get paid for procedures or, or things that they do. Whereas a lot of the work in ID is either non-RVU generating or we're preventing bad things from happening, whether it's through infection prevention and control or through antimicrobial stewardship uh, or, or other activities like that. And so showing our value uh, and, and getting appropriately compensated for a lot of that non-clinical work uh, that, that, that we do, I, I think is critical uh, for us to do individually, but also for we as a community and a society to support each other. I mentioned that the issue of uh, debt relief uh, and there is uh, does appear to be some movement uh, potentially for some legislation on what's called the Biopreparedness Workforce Program. This is a part of an overall bill called the Prevent Pandemics Act. But basically what this would allow is it would encourage loan repayment options for anybody who chooses to go into public health or uh, infectious diseases as a specialty. And so again, this this could be another opportunity to try to help you know remove some of those barriers or roadblocks with people who maybe they're interested, but then you know when when they look at that comparison of the salary or they look at that looming debt, they kind of just shake their heads and say, you know, I, I don't I don't know that I can make take the plunge.
0: Yeah, and just like you said, it's it's really the elephant in the room. It's interesting because in some of the compensation surveys, uh, about half of ID physicians seem to report themselves as feeling like they are fairly compensated in their current setting. Um, and so a lot of focus really gets placed on that salary component. But I think it's important for us to say that there have been conflicting results on why trainees ultimately do not choose careers in ID. If you look back at that paper that you mentioned from Dr. Benura and colleagues, um, and take a peek at table five, they have a list of which factors most influence the decision not to pursue ID as a career. And although salary remains on that list, the other things that came close behind were factors such as the desire to be a generalist versus a consultant, the concern for limited job availability, or a lack of procedures in ID, among a host of other examples and factors. There's also another paper that was published in CID that looked at the factors influencing selection of ID training for military internal medicine residents, and they noted that for those who considered ID, 73% changed their mind in their PGY-2 or PGY-3 year, and of those they cited salary in 22%, a lack of procedures in 18%, and training lengthened So, you know, there certainly could be some impact from differences between military and civilian trainee experiences. And although salary, of course, remains important, there certainly are a range of other factors that we need to consider that people are using to make their decision. So we've talked a little bit about individual salaries and decision making, but I think one of the next steps is for us to take an even further Step back. And you've already started to allude to this, but we exist in our larger healthcare system. And there are many that feel there needs to be fundamental changes in how we function in that setting to be able to truly impact our field and how our quote value is accounted for. I think there are several who've expressed similar sentiments, but I think it's most well captured by Brad Spellberg. I was wondering if you could walk us through this viewpoint about finding ways to suggest for fundamental changes in our healthcare market and how we can and how we can adjust how the healthcare system might view and incorporate ID. Yeah,
1: happy to. Yeah, so Dr. Spielberg, for those who don't know, is a one of a CMO at the large uh, public hospital there in in LA County. And, you know, certainly has been very outspoken and and has written provocatively, but I think raises some really important points and probably one of the most uh, direct, you know, explications of his views came from a perspective piece he wrote in 2020 in Open Forum Infectious Diseases that he titled Alignment with Market Forces, the Rewithering of ID. And he kind of reaches back to some of those older papers from Dr. Petersdorf. Um, And some quotes that he says is, you know, the answer is very simple. He says the field of ID has never adapted to the reality of market forces. And he says one of the predominant handicaps of the ID clinical specialty is that there's nothing we do that no one else can do. He says, only oncologists prescribe cancer chemotherapy. Only cardiologists do cardiac caths. Only surgeons take patients to the operating room. What is it that only ID practitioners do? And so I think he's really highlighting the fact that, you know, what is the leverage that, you know, ID has to say this is the skill set or the knowledge base that that really is unique that we bring to the case. And I think, you know, many of us would, would argue that, you know, ID doctors, you know, know more of or maybe prescribe antibiotics more judiciously than others. But the reality is almost every doctor you know at your hospital probably can prescribe antibiotics. And so he really argues that more than just trying to address compensation or make tweaks at the margins, we really need to fundamentally change the interaction between our specialty and the healthcare system uh, so that we can incentivize the market to, to really value ID more uh, and to compensate it. And that's likely going to ch- require either legal or some sort of regulatory changes. So some of the ones that he proposes he suggests that only people who've undergone specialized ID training, whether that's through fellowship training or some other type of kind of accredited certification course should be allowed either through law or regulation or medical staff credentialing to interpret you know complicated ID diagnostic tests, susceptibility results or to prescribe, You know, certain newly approved antimicrobial agents. So, really, kind of trying to carve out that space uh, that that ID doctors can own. The second one is really a push to mandate public reporting of antibiotic prescribing at a system level and then really link pay for performance measures to those types of reporting so that systems uh, that use a lot of antibiotics. Uh, you know, adjusted for disease severity are going to be penalized, whereas those systems that are more judicious and use them more uh, reasonably are going to receive payment bonuses. And this really may highlight the value of ID, say, in leading antimicrobial stewardship programs, for example. And then number three is really, you know, I think a push for true uh, reform and payment structure within our U.S. healthcare system. You know, right now it's still largely a, a fee for a service where the more procedures and the more things that patients have done, uh, hospitals make more money. And, and so cognitive specialists who are really about preventing people from getting sick or who are about you know minimizing waste and harm, uh, right now are not valued in the current fee for, fee for, uh, for service uh, system. But if we were to move to more of a value-based purchasing system, then uh, some of those cognitive specialists uh, might become more valuable to payers uh, as opposed to some of the more procedural specialists who mainly are treating patients who are already uh, getting sick.
0: I I do have to say, I I think I do sort of fundamentally agree with a lot of the things that Brad says in that uh, re-withering paper. And I think we probably think that a lot when you're on service, (laughs) like, wow, how how could we make this better? And as much as I I think it would be great if our salaries matched other subspecialties. I think that this type of reform is what matters way more—sort um, of changing the whole system.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's ultimately going to be a both hand. You, you know, I yeah. think all the things with building the pipeline and, and advocating for better compensation within the current system, while we also push for some of these more. Um, You know, kind of game changing reforms uh, are are really important. And I think, you know, we also need to probably find important stakeholders and partners, whether it's some of the other cognitive specialties, or even patients, really to advocate for some of these fundamental changes uh, to the way that healthcare is paid for uh, in this country. Yeah.
0: And, you know, the last thing that we haven't really talked about along the way, but I think is very important in, in how people decide to choose their career is perception of work-life balance, or or I should say work-life integration, or just general workload. Are people happy in their respective uh subspecialties? Do they feel respected or appreciated at work? And, you know, I think that there are Some of these surveys that have shown that somewhere around 94 to 95% of ID physicians do feel like they would choose the same specialty again. And that, I think, is really uh, amazing.
1: Yeah, I think there's this very interesting tension. When you talk to most ID doctors, a lot of them, you know, feel overworked and and many may feel burned out. But at the same time, they really love what they do, are very satisfied with their job and say (laughs) that they would choose it again you know, I worry a little bit about coming out of the pandemic. I definitely think public health and and ID, we, we have some scars to show from that, but I'm hoping that through, you know, bonding together as a community and through, you know, resiliency together, we can help support each other, you know, to remember all of those things that, you know, make us really happy with our choice.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think there are a couple other thoughts that you and I had put together in some special populations that we need to pay attention to and and be particularly thoughtful about. And one that I thought I could ask you, particularly as a program director, is I think that there is a lot of challenges surrounding job opportunities for international medical graduates and that there is room for improvement there what are ways that you've been able to tackle that with your trainees or even more on a national level
1: yeah i think this is a huge passion area for 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 me and for our program i think you know some of the the best trainees that we've had, some of the, the best ID doctors that I know were international medical graduates. And I think oftentimes their experience with early medical training in their own country highlighted to them, you know, the interest and just how passionate they are about ID. But the reality is that many of them, depending on the, the type of waiver that they come, come to the U.S. with, know that at the end of their training, they may not be able to either find a, a waiver job Uh, where they can remain and practice infectious diseases, or uh, they may not be able to do that, you know, in a bigger city or in an academic, you know, environment where they're really able to launch their career. And so I think there needs to be a lot more awareness, you know, about the information and the action steps about, you know, the visa process and, and really helping mentor people through that process. I would love to see, you know, national efforts to increase access to resources and immigration lawyers and others to help people navigate that so they don't feel like they're having to figure it all out themselves. And ultimately, I'd love to see state and kind of national advocacy for either legislation to increase the number of waiver jobs or or maybe provide that anybody who decides to go into infectious diseases or public health automatically you know can get a waiver um, regardless of you know where geographically or, or what type of setting that they're practicing in I really think that could be a game changer because I think there are many international medical graduates who would love to do ID um, but the the, the prospect of, of having to navigate the waiver situation seems daunting So I think another special population I would love to throw to you and, and hear you talk about which I, I think they oftentimes, may get neglected in this conversation, but they're critically important is our pediatric ID colleagues. So talk to me a little bit about what what does the landscape look like there? And and what do you think we can do to help out our, our PD ID friends?
0: Yeah, I'd say really more generally, I think that growth in pediatric medical subspecialties as a workforce pipeline has been a longstanding issue or, or bigger concern that people want to understand a little bit better. You know, there was a paper from 2021 that took a look at growth and changes in the pediatric medical subspecialty workforce pipeline and found that actually the number of individuals entering pediatric fellowship training programs was increasing, but it was uneven across different subspecialties They compared fields with greatest growth and then noted those with limited growth, of which pediatric ID was one of, along with nephrology and adolescent and child abuse medicine. And I don't think this paper necessarily answered the bigger question, but a lot of the concerns that we think about in pediatric ID are ones that we've already expressed. And in particular, prolonging your training um, and coming in with that concern for your amount of debt and the lower salary. And so I think it might be worth just pointing out, particularly for those who are more on the adult side, that pediatric fellowships are at least three years, and and there certainly are those who may add additional training. And so PIDS or the Pediatric ID Society has supported a lot of the similar advocacy efforts that you mentioned with IDSA, thinking about compensation and debt relief Um, There is work towards sort of these larger pediatric subspecialty loan repayment programs. And I think something that PIDS has done really well or has made really major efforts towards is trying to reach out to early learners and expose them to pediatric ID. And, you know, what are the pathways to having a career as a pediatric ID doc? And so there's the SUMMERS program, and there's a, a new one that'll be um, starting soon called MEET ID, MEET standing for Mentored Engaging Educational Training focused Program. But really, these are ways to integrate undergraduate students and early learners and introduce them to pediatric ID clinicians and researchers so that they can see what this career might look like. I, I think some of the additional challenges that people worry about is a, a very limited job market, although now at this point, there's just so many more jobs than there are fellows coming out of fellowship. Um, and then I think if you're a physician scientist, the lack of research funding can be particularly worrisome. You know, I think it's interesting. I'm med-peds, and so I am always quite interested in combined fellowships. And for those in the audience who are not as close to match or or um, the changes recently, this year was the first year that they combined the pediatric and medicine subspecialties match so that they were... At the same time, um, which is meant to help facilitate some of the both combined options for people who are seeking uh, dual fellowships, but also for those who are probably couples matching and a couple other factors. I know anecdotally, I, I feel like people feel like allowing folks to do combined subspecialties has had a positive impact, particularly on the pediatric side. Because if you can support an excellent candidate who wants to do both the adult and pediatric, or let's say you want to do pediatric ID and, and critical care, um, that this is a way to to have people who are on the fence that may have chosen one still sort of have their foot in both sides. Um, and I don't know if that's something that you've seen in the applicants that have come through, Brad, but um, that's something that I, I wish I, we could dig into a little bit more. And I think there probably are some people who are working on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've started to kind of dip our toes into, you know, combined ID critical care or, you know, med-peds ID. But I I definitely think that's an area for growth, really to meet people um, to be able to tailor their fellowship program for what they're really looking for. So I think another uh, group that we really should highlight is the physician-scientist workforce. And Although I think many of the same challenges apply here, such as, you know, early interest and compensation, there also are some unique aspects really to consider here. And we don't have time to go into it in great detail, but there's a really influential um, policy statement uh, led by Dr. Upi Singh from Stanford and and several other colleagues that was published in 2018 in, in JID that really highlighted and came with some concrete um Proposals, things like increasing collaboration and funding for federal and university grant funding, really supporting additional mentor support for early ID physician scientists, expanding uh, K-grant awards to cover more translational and public health work and not just basic science work, and and many other, I think, really thoughtful solutions. But I, I think we need to really focus hard on that because really many of the Scientific discoveries, like you know, the amazing vaccines and, and novel drugs, and you know, our understandings about the basic pathogenesis are really driven by our physician scientist uh, workforce, and, and so we need to be replenishing uh, that key piece of our community.
0: And I, I think the last thing that I wanted to mention to sort of round this out are thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and I know particularly on the pediatric side, there's a Pretty dismal number of underrepresented in medicine, um, clinicians present on the pediatric side. And I encourage people to check out, there's a JPID supplement from December of 2022. So this month, um, on eliminating health disparities in pediatric ID. But there are, um, a couple papers in there about thinking about a more diverse and inclusive pediatric ID workforce, but I think all of these concepts can also apply to our adult ID workforce as well. And a lot of these have to do with getting involved and reaching out to people earlier in their training, which are a couple of the things that we've looked at earlier. But I think that a lot of this rests on also providing inclusive and supportive and engaging learning environments at any stage of training and for those who are junior faculty. Um, And I'm summarizing a huge topic, but I, I think it's important for us to to end on this and and think, you know, we talked a little bit about international medical grads, but I think this is this is a little bit larger than that as well.
1: Yeah, I think this is a critically important topic. And, you know, not only because I think, you know, there's clear scientific evidence that diversity drives excellence, we also serve a very diverse patient population. And so to be able to serve them and to do provide them the best care, we need to have that same representation of diversity, you you know, and inclusion in our ID workforce. And and so I think, as you said, you know, it's at all levels, It, it involves mentorship, sponsorship, you know, really representation so that people can see, you know, what the future looks like and see that they are, you know, fully welcomed and included, you know, to be a part and and really to be leading and and have a seat at the table uh, in in everything that our ID community wants to strive for. So so I, I think this is really a, a critical thing that we can't lose sight of as we're thinking about how to grow our workforce.
0: So ultimately, you know, it's a mixture of parts of everything that we've talked about. We have to push for fair compensation. We have to think about how can we integrate ID earlier into trainees' experiences. We need to advocate for legislation and programs that recruit a diverse workforce. But those are really big topics, and we can't tackle them alone. And I want us to end on a positive note because I think all of us probably have this spiel. But what can we do on an individual basis to recruit an ID and I love – there's a paper that you wrote, hashtag YID, about crowdsourcing the top reasons to choose ID, um, and you sort of – pulled a lot of our ID Twitter friends, but I I want us to end with that. Let's talk about all the awesome things that you can tell people about ID um, and encourage them to, to learn more and hopefully join us.
1: Yeah, that sounds awesome. And, you know, just to tell you a little bit of the genesis of this paper every year, you know, all the different fellowship program directors got a chance to pitch to the internal medicine residents here at UT Southwestern (laughs) about their specialty. And so I kind of inspired by the old David Letterman top 10 list, (laughs) went to Twitter and said, hey, you know, ID Twitter fans, you know, what What are the top reasons why someone should go into ID? And came up with this list that I presented to our group and, the, and then posted a Twitter thread about it, got some traction there. And then ultimately, uh, Paul Sachs invited me to write it up as a paper, which was a lot of fun. So I'll go through it in kind of descending order. So number 10 really is, I think ID, you are the medical detective and you are the internist internist. And so I think that, All of us are attracted to, you know, that mystery case where the ID doc comes in and, you know, asks uh, that expert, you know, history question and and busts open the case. And, (laughs) you know, how many times have you been told, you know, by another team, oh, we didn't know what was going on. So we called ID and, and, and so I, I think the fact that as ID docs, we have to have this broad knowledge about, you know, all the things, general medicine and all the the different aspects of the body uh, really resonates well. And, you know, I challenge you to think about, you know, all your favorite, you know, CPC and case conferences. A lot of times those are those are ID cases. So so that's my reason number 10. So reason number nine is that you are the hospital's social butterfly. And what I mean by this is you get to work and collaborate with so many different people. So all of the different medical subspecialties, but also the surgeons, you know, emergency medicine. We get to interact with our colleagues in pathology and in laboratory medicine and microbiology. You know, some, some of our... Uh, subdisciplines like transplant infectious diseases or you know musculoskeletal ID by nature really uh, lend themselves to multidisciplinary teams and then you think about how many teams do we get to to partner with like our wonderful ID pharmacy colleagues you know the the lab technicians the infection preventionists it, it really is just a a specialty where you get to just interact with everybody in the hospital, which is a lot of fun. I don't know if that resonates with, with your experience as well.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And I really like how you get insight into so many different aspects of the hospital and different services that you often may not have interacted with during your residency.
1: Yeah. So number eight, you get to make the social history
0: relevant again. So
1: this is really, you know, rather than just put, you know, no tobacco alcohol or drugs you really get to you know open open the gateway to asking all those interesting and exotic you know epi exposure questions about food and recreational activities and travel and insect bites and you know all of those different things and and again it's nothing is more gratifying than when you get that key social history clue that cracks open you know what was really a previously uh, a diagnostic dilemma but on the other hand, I think also ID doctors, along with others, we really, our patients trust us and, and, and we really get to share this sacred bond where oftentimes we get to walk through some of the most intimate details and the most consequential events of patients' lives. And that's really a, an important thing, a uh, part of our job. So number seven is you actually get to help people that you never even get to meet. And so I think really, you know, through our leadership and things like public health Uh, Things like uh, work through local health departments, uh, the CDC, you know, the renowned uh, uh, EIS program, uh, as well as things like, um, you know, vaccine development and campaigns or infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship programs. You are actually having an impact on individuals, communities and patients that you are never going to get to meet. And so I think that's a, a really special and kind of unique aspect uh, to, to the specialty. So number six, and, and you talked about this a little bit, is you actually don't have to choose between being a specialist and a generalist. So yes. on the one hand, you get to be a specialist and, you know, know, you know, go really deep in, in your knowledge on, on certain topics and people are going to consult you for your expert knowledge on that. But on the other hand, you know, many of us still, particularly for our HIV patients, um, are there primary care doctors, and so we get to still, you know, have that longitudinal uh, pr- primary care experience uh, that that really bonds us to our patients and, and can lead lead to uh, better patient outcomes. So, so you don't have to pick. You you can <laughs> you can you can be both a specialist and, and a generalist. So number five, uh, the world is your oyster, and like I say, hopefully without vibrio in it. <laughs> so, so I think what I mean by this is two things. So number one. There's such an enormous variety of pathways, careers that you can pursue out of uh, ID fellowship training. And there was a really wonderful uh, supplement issue in JID in September 2017, where there was a series of articles that talked about all the different potential careers that people can do uh, out of ID, whether that's in industry, public health, academics, private practice, you know, medical education, all of these different things are really you know, the sky's the limit and, you know, no door is really uh, not open to you when you graduate from an ID fellowship. And then obviously, I think more specifically, the intersection between ID and global health has always been a major draw for trainees to our specialty. And, you know, a lot of your ID knowledge and skill set really can travel well with you across the globe, no matter what resources, or no matter where you find yourself. If you're an ID doctor, you're gonna have something that that you can have to offer to the patients that you see there. So number four, you'll never be bored because your work is constantly evolving. And, and so, you know, one of the perpetual challenges of ID is, you know, with emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases, you know, every day is unpredictable. And this is honestly one of my favorite parts of my job is every day I come to work and I have no idea what I'm (laughs) going to get to see today, what I'm going to get to do. And so whether it's, you know, through drug resistance and and antibiotic resistance that that we face, uh, you know, novel infectious disease threats, you know, obviously COVID and and things like that, uh, really, our work is constantly changing and and new. And and that's really, I think, an exciting reason to go into ID. I don't know what your experience has been with that.
0: Yeah, you never know what someone's going to page you about. I got paged about a stingray bite the other day. And I was like, hold on, let me look that up really quick. I'll call you right back.
1: Yeah, some of the best pages ever, you know, the pages to the ID fellow. Yeah. So, So, well, number three, then, is you get to play with some cool new toys. And, And so I think, you know, although the previous generation of ID physicians got to celebrate you know, the miracle of the advent of antibiotics and, and vaccines, you know, we have really witnessed, you know, the revolutionary impact that combination antiretroviral therapy has had on HIV, that DAAs have had for chronic hepatitis C. You know, we're really in the midst of, of a revolutionary breakthroughs in the field of diagnostics with molecular, you know, next generation sequencing, really changing the way that we, we think about um, the clinical micro lab, You know, things like phage therapy, you know, novel vaccine platforms, thinking about the human microbiome. It it really, the the new things that are coming down the pipeline, I think still makes ID as exciting as ever of a specialty to to, to be joining. So number two is you are going to save patients' lives and be well positioned to lead in an era of value-based care. And so really a core part of what we do as an ID physician is really help take care of oftentimes critically ill patients. And and there really is a a body of literature, much of this, you know, driven by IDSA that shows that early involvement of ID doctors across a variety of different conditions improves patient outcomes. We decrease mortality. We lower healthcare costs. We get people out of the hospital earlier. uh, We decrease readmissions. And so I think our value to uh, the healthcare has been shown and, and we just have to highlight that and we have to advocate for that. And I talked about earlier, that hopefully as healthcare changes from a fee for service to more of a value-based care, I I think ID is really positioned well uh, to lead uh, and to to, to really succeed, hopefully, in in that new landscape of medicine. And then number one, and this is probably my favorite one. So, (laughs) you know, we've we've talked about some doom and gloom, but the thing, honestly, that gives me the most hope uh, is really the ID community. And, you know, my colleagues I get to work with here at UT Southwestern, you know, all of my colleagues on ID Twitter and that we get to meet up at meetings is that you get to number one, join a community that loves what they do and that passionately advocates for all patients uh, no matter what. I think there's so much overlap, you know, between the ID diseases that we treat and different social determinants of health that we oftentimes find ourselves on the front lines advocating uh, for underserved or marginalized patient populations you know, many times we may still be kind of the social conscience reminding uh, us all why we decided to go into medicine in the first place. And and so I think, you know, even though we have some of these very serious um, challenges ahead in terms of recruiting to the ID workforce, I I think that the future of ID is bright and, and it's hopeful if, you know, we bond together as a community, if we leverage our strengths, if we continue to advocate, if we continue to Exhibit the passion for for why we do what we do. Uh, I, I think that's that's really where we can find our strength. So
0: so any final words, Sarah, as we close out. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say the same thing that I think that a lot of people took the match news and sort of focused on the negative, but we do have. 300 some new ID fellows that are joining us that are excited to be here and the future is still bright. And, you know, there are things that we can work on, but I think also remembering what drew you to ID in the first place and made you excited is, is very important. So I hope everyone listens to these top 10 and gets excited again. Um, and whether you're listening to this on the the commute or at the end of the day, there's a, we have a big, uh, small but mighty community. And I encourage if there are learners who are earlier on and, and don't have a, a sort of a natural way to find an ID person to to reach out to, they can always reach out to me and work on something through Febbrow. And I'm happy to help them make connections and, and try to find someone an ID that can potentially mentor them closer to home, wherever that is.
1: Well, thank you again, Sarah, for the invitation to do yeah. this. This has been a great uh, opportunity to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. And certainly one of the bright spots of the future of ID is the Febrile podcast, and the, <laughs> the, community, the community that you guys are building. So I'm excited to see what the future holds for, for Febrile.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this. Thanks again for listening and for celebrating February for two years. We will be back in January with some brand new episodes and some new guests. And so we're really excited. Um, I hope everyone has a happy holiday season. Thanks for coming, Brad.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: All right, everyone. Stay safe and I'll see you in 2023.